0: You're listening to the H Society Podcast, presented by Hurex Digital, a weekly podcast featuring prominent thought leaders in the world of professional societies, associations, and nonprofit organizations. Discover actionable ways these people are making their organizations valuable for their members through digital technology, publishing, and continuous education. No fluff. Tune in to hear best practices and tactical solutions from the best thought leaders and practitioners in the association and nonprofit world today.
1: Welcome to the latest episode of the H Society by Herix Digital. We hope this will be a thought provoking and entertaining podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Andrew Corbett. He is the Paul T. Babson, Chair of Entrepreneurship and former Chair of the Entrepreneurship Division and at Babson College, currently the Faculty Director for the Butler Institute for Free Enterprise through entrepreneurship at Babson College as well. And uh, many other uh, things Andrew's involved with, we'll get into that. I'm your host of the series, Scott Hansen. I head the Boston office at Jurex Digital where I'm the AVP for our Society Association and Nonprofit Clients. Before we get going, I wanted to mention that today's episode is brought to you by katabu.com, a cloud-based content platform to create, publish, and distribute interactive mobile-ready content. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. This is a real thrill. I've known Andrew for, known each other for about 30 years. And um, this is exciting to have you on with us today.
2: Yeah, well, Scott, it's great to great. To, it's always great to see you. It's always great to talk to you. So it's a pleasure for me to be here and talk about uh, anything you want to chat about that might be of interest to your listeners.
1: Well, uh, we're taking a, a, a little bit of a <clears throat> different tack today. Andrew does not work at a, a, a well, I not Babson's a sort of a nonprofit, but. Um, there's a couple reasons that uh, I'm happy he's with us today, uh, and we'll get into that. But before we do, maybe Andrew, you can start out. Uh, we can talk about uh, you made quite a career switch. Well, well, it's quite a few years ago, but when we met and knew each other, we were both in the publishing space. So maybe tell us how you got to
2: Babson and. Yeah. Sure, of course. And how, how I became a professor of entrepreneurship working in a business school. Yeah, happy to. Um, so, yeah, it was like early 90s and, you know, still relatively young guy at that time. And I was um, working. Uh, I started out working at an STM publisher. Right. I worked for five years or so at Kluwer Academic at the time, which I know the Walters Kluwer Group still exists in various forms and, and, and things. Uh, worked there doing uh, marketing and sales work for about five years and then I came over to Addison Wesley doing work for both their trade side but also their technical and STM books and at that time you know sort of er like early mid-90s was a time when certainly computers and tech and all that stuff was exploding and there were dedicated bookstores I don't even know if they still exist for just for technical books I mean they were popping up everywhere with the advent of computers and then the internet and other things so my role at that time was, was, you know, I was a sales manager for that. Then I moved into corporate sales where I was a national sales manager running a large uh, corporate group, part of, part of it there, where we were selling, you know, STM product into direct into customer, uh, into corporations in bulk and that kind of stuff. And so it was great. I, I, I really enjoyed all that work. I liked doing it. Um, I was working on my MBA part-time uh, during that time and, uh, you know, Really what happened, Scott, was that um, I was, you know, I was one of those people thinking, oh, yeah, you know, academics, whatever, they live in these ivory towers, the classic stuff. I'm not sure what, you know, what they really do. But what happened was I was starting to see problems at work, you know, issues and problems with personnel, the organization, things that I was dealing with, things that I didn't have answers to. And what was, you know, I would go take, I was taking classes at night and on the weekends and It was funny. I'd go in in the evening. I'd take this class. And all of a sudden, like the lights were going off. And I was like, "Eh, this is interesting. Problems I'm having Mm -hmm. you know, around leadership, leading other people, working with others, whatever it was. All of a sudden, I started to take these classes. I'm like, wow, there are some answers here. And I was able to apply the stuff I was learning in the evening to the problems that I was having at work during the day. Problems, challenges, you know, whatever. Um, And I was like, there's actually some value in this. You know, like I, I was sort of one of those skeptics. Right. And then by the very end, when I was finishing, a professor said to me, hey, have you ever thought about doing this? Because I wrote some paper and it was pretty deep, I guess. I don't know. And he's like, you ever think about doing this? And I said, yeah, I thought about it. But I'm, I, am you know, career. I mean, is, is there anything really there? You know, doesn't you know, teachers don't make much money. College professors like I was you know, young and thought, you know, I was like you know, trying to build a career. And I was thinking about other things, too but uh turned out that that you know there was great opportunity at the time it was sort of like all the professors that came after world war ii they were all starting to leave they were retiring opportunity was coming i was interested in entrepreneurship and so yeah i I made the jump quit my job went into a doctoral program full-time and and the rest i guess they say is history but you know, knowing you and your wife at the time and other people there was a really important time for me because it, looking at that organization at the time really helped me. We were starting the reason why I got interested in entrepreneurship and corporate entrepreneurship, because we were at you know a big publisher at the time. There's a big STM group part of it, but we we're trying to build and break out new things, right? New parts of organizations are starting. So lack of a better corporate ventures within the large organization. And I noticed that. One or two people would start it, then it would grow and it would be 10 and it would be 15 and it would be 20. And at some point it started becoming more bureaucratic. Right. And Mm -hmm. that interests me. So I I guess that's where the egghead wonky kind of stuff came from. Now, it turns out that's a very naive question uh, to do research on because it's not about size. Like the biggest organization in the world could be very entrepreneurial and very swift and move fast and do things. You know, I mean, people use Google for that as an example. It's probably true. And at the same time, you can have a two-person operation that's as bureaucratic as you know most of the governments you bump into. So size really doesn't matter in that case. Um, but it got me on my way to start investigating, thinking other things. So I don't know. You'll edit a lot of that out, Scott. That was a long answer, but that's how it all happens.
1: No, that's uh, that was that's very interesting, and uh, it's it is kind of you know just about uh, you and I. But uh, while while you went on and uh and did that, then I also kind of got out of publishing and more on the technology side at startups. Um, some worked, some didn't work, but yep. uh, it was a very, very interesting, um, not maybe always a career fulfilling, but uh, a, a lot of good life experiences. Right. So, well, um
2: yep. We all no, learn but, some things that go sideways too, right? So th- none of them, none of those experiences are bad experiences, right? They just maybe aren't all as positive as one would want.
1: So I'm gonna I'm gonna come back uh, to something, but I wanted you to mention, like I said, you have so, you're uh, involved in so many things right now. But one thing we talked about prior to this was the uh, the new Milken Center in Washington D.C., and I just thought maybe you could talk a little bit about that this is a brand new project
2: yeah no i'm happy to and you're right i mean i guess just to put a bow on the last part you know one of the things that drove me into this job was the the opportunity to do a lot of things so i'm a professor and that's what i do but i have time to consult and do other things and you know i do a lot of work in in chile and i do uh, i have a i have an appointment out of school in norway as well as right now just for the fall at baruch down in new york city but The work that I'm doing with an awesome group down in D.C. is the uh, Milken Center for Advancing the American Dream. Um, So folks might remember Michael Milken from High Yield Bonds in the 80s or so and uh, and other things that happened with him. But um, (laughs) good guy. He's donated a ton of money to start this in D.C. And he I think he sees it for himself as his own story, like many of us do and i think he and others maybe worry about quote unquote the american dream right and uh, what's happening to it in today's world and you know what really are the pillars or the things that gird what the american dream is could be should be for all of us as the world evolves so um, a bunch of really smart folks are building exactly that down in dc right on pennsylvania avenue so it's going to have a A visitor center, it's gonna be a place where people can come and experience and understand what the American dream is, and also hopefully inspire them to see what, you know, their American dream is or can be. Um, You know, for myself, I always think, I I think of it as I think a lot of people do as the classic sort of, you know, immigrant who comes here, he or she has, you know, nothing but the shirt on their back. And I think there are thousands and thousands and thousands of examples of people like that. but others have their American dream as well. And it looks a little differently. Um, Some people maybe don't have the opportunity uh, for various reasons to achieve or even get started or understand what their American dream is. So part of that's gonna be programming as well to help people um, who may not have had the opportunity um, maybe to have the American dream. I mean, I I feel like I have mine. I feel very fortunate, you know, from where I came and where I am, um, you know, so uh, I'm really happy to be working on that. And they asked me because the center sees that what we see is that to have to to achieve your American dream, it's built upon four pillars, right? You need you need um, education. You need access to health care. You need financial literacy to be sure. And the other thing is entrepreneurship and innovation. And so they asked me because I knew some people and did a project or a little work for a couple of people that are involved to, to get involved and help them as they're building out what this should be, what the exhibit should look like and all that kind of stuff. So it's really super fun. Uh, Michael Milken, Mr. Milken's birthday, happens to be July 4th. Mm-hmm. So we've been at it for in earnest for some time now, but the um, the Visitor Center will have a grand opening on July 4th, 2023. So we're now less than two years away, so we're really under the gun to really so get,
1: it's a so it's a, it's what sort of a visitor center slash museum but
2: yeah i mean i i think about it like this think about it as all the smithsonians that are in dc that's what we're looking for but around yeah. this concept of the american dream and they'll be programming like i'm working with them we're going to try to program with inner city youth and the maybe program with the junior achievement which you might remember from your kids in, in grammar school and you know middle school primary yep. grade i did it myself you know, to, to have programming for younger folks so they can understand what it is, but it's going to be there for all and for everyone. So it'll be, you know, program for younger kids, programming for people who need access to capital. So, you know, you have people that want their American dream, but don't have access to it. So we'll work with folks that, that understand those issues as well and can help people uh, find, fund, and figure out what their American dream is. And uh, so, yeah, really excited, really excited, super fun program. <clears throat>
1: That sounds really interesting. I also uh, I'm kind of you know skipping through uh, the the pages of all your uh, what you're working on, but uh, uh, you also are involved. I think I'm correct. uh, uh, You're an editor on a journal and uh, I think a book series in addition to having writing your own books.
2: Yeah. So that's but yeah, Scott. That's interesting because it does. It takes me back to my roots of STM. You know, so it goes back twenty, you know, thirty years sometimes 30 plus years ago it's really interesting that now i'm a contributor to these journals and book series that when i was a little snot-nosed kid coming out of college you know and i got my first job working for Cluer academic and i'm like okay we're going to promote go to these society and association meetings like the groups that you know are your primary audience and i'm going there yep. to the you know the uh, the the geophysical society of america and i'm going to these acm meetings and these computer meetings and i'm looking at these journals going what is this stuff and then like 10 years later i'm submitting you know research articles to get published in these things so it's just kind of funny yeah. um i would i remember one in in particular you know that we launched when i was at Cluer, and it was called small business economics and i was like literally there as the marketing person when the editor started it and now it's like you know it's like a pretty well it's it's pretty it's a very well respected journal in my field but not exactly but I I publish in there you know it's just kind of funny how things come full circle but it's great for me too to be on the other side and I'll bump into old friends every once in a while who are still in the industry um which is interesting as well but yeah I, I I really enjoyed my time in publishing and it's just weird that it's gone full circle and the good thing is Now, like in any relationship, when you're working in things, I'm working with an editor or somebody at at one of the, you know, either at the journal, the Journal of Business Venturing, which is published by Wiley. And uh, the book series I have is with Emerald. Um, You know, I can understand the pressures that they're under, right, As, as an STM publisher and the way things have changed over time. And What's important to them, so I think it, it helps me. You know, like no, like like I said, no experience. You know, you can always call on your experiences, and the fact that I, you know, worked in that world for 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 a while has helped me to be able to build good relationships and understand what the editors and and the publisher sometimes and the marketing people at the various presses or and associations are dealing with. Right? I mean, it's a it's and a and,
1: uh, and probably uh, you know since you're. Uh uh cluer days uh i'm guessing the staffs are a, a wee bit smaller than they used to be back then. yeah i mean you Which think may, about maybe isn't a, ba- a
2: bad thing right maybe they no yeah, not but... at all but i mean i think often about you know about that i remember distinctly one of my older brothers saying to me when i got a job like i was the only guy that went to college in my family and he's like oh i just saw on the cover of a magazine publishing it's the safest and most secure industry to be in right and this was like 1987 or something like that i'm like yeah sure you're right what you know but boy you know that changed pretty quickly so you think about all the i mean it's just an interesting interesting way the way the whole industry's changed i mean look you do, we're doing a podcast everything's electronic everything's digital i know that's what you guys do at here and you know uh, um it's, it's well my really
1: listeners uh, I've, I've shared this little anecdote. Uh, before uh, on our podcast, but uh, occasionally, uh, now that I'm uh, uh, probably one of the most senior people at Hurix, age-wise, people will say, Scott, uh, my son or daughter is graduating from college, and uh, they're really thinking about getting into publishing, and I thought maybe you could offer some words of advice, and I would say, I have one word, brung. Yeah. And that sounds a little sarcastic, but um well, I think they any any
2: young person we need that wants to get into publishing in quotes would need to broaden their perspective and think about it a lot more broadly than they do, right? It's media, you know, it's media, it's yeah, it's it's how do how do we get that content to people at the end, you know, that that want it. So bring the content to the consumer at the end and and all the technology that goes in in between and how all that's changed and you know what you see change And i always think about it's like it's so like the value chain of the industry changed right i mean that that's what happens i mean what happened was it used to be like think about the fact that you know people that used to print books these big printing companies used to make a ton of money and and there were production people in between i mean but as it shifted and things gone digital like where the money goes, who makes the money, who, because it all gets down to who's delivering the real value. And we don't have to print a book anymore. When that gets, gets disintermediated, right. Then it's an issue of, okay, well then where's the value? The value is probably with the creator, the people who create the content and the values then with the the people who can then distribute it electronically. Like you guys probably do, right. Like building that infrastructure. So it all changed. And, you know, I, I assume a lot of, physical printing press companies are long gone and, and things like that change. But it's interesting because like we said, you know, 30 years ago, one of the most stable industries, and now it's, I think we've gone through it, right? The transition's the hard part. Now we're on the other side and the industry itself, as as it said, is, re- I would assume, and you correct me, you know, relatively more stable. Um, still how you compete and win in it is probably not, but actually yeah. we'll understand how it works now.
1: Yep. Yeah. So- How's it, how's this for a segue? Sure. Uh, speaking about publishing, um, your book beyond the champion right. speaks to, uh, some things that I wanted to talk about next. I, uh, uh, as we were talking earlier, um, a, a colleague, uh, and a future guest of this podcast was sharing with me that, um, uh, she's currently taking a class and, uh, one of the best classes uh, that she's had in her uh, program that she's in was on leadership um, within an organization. And um, although uh, this podcast deals primarily with society's nonprofits, but I think, I'm sure leadership is very, very important to them just as well. So maybe you kind of talk a little bit about that and- um, yeah how you see this?
2: Yeah, I think actually, Scott, it's an interesting transition because we think about, you know, how STM has evolved and how organizations and societies have evolved and had to change. And I think that's the watchword of all of it, right? I I feel fortunate that I, you know, 20 plus years ago, pegged on an interesting, important thing. And that was to research entrepreneurship, because I see entrepreneurship and the skill set that entrepreneurs have as being useful, I mean those are useful tools that anyone can have, right? It shouldn't be, it's not just about starting a business. It's about using those skills to be successful in whatever you do. And if you think about how associations, publishing companies, media group, whatever have change and evolve and continue to being able to deal with ambiguity and uncertainty and all those things is hugely important. And so that book, the, the book you mentioned, and thanks for that, it's my colleague, Gina O'Connor. We started it when we were both at RPI. Now we're both Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. We both happen to be at Babson. You know, that, that was the third book in a, in a research project that looked at how do large organizations, so you think about any of these associations or publishers you deal with, and you think about your career, in the past 20, 30 years and how they've evolved from where they were and how do you get there? And how do you do that? When you know that, when you know that your current line of business is going to go away, right? Or how it operates, yep. is going to change dramatically. Um, now, we don't know if that's five years, 10 years, 15, but we know it's coming, right? Someone's got to be responsible for starting to look at that, right? Now, most of us have day to day and quarterly, quarterly financial things or yearly stuff. And that's sometimes a problem in an organization. But somebody's got to look out for the future financial health of the organization. Otherwise, it's going to you know, go go down the drain. And so the research first looked at and the first book looked at, OK, how do these big companies do it? So these were big old guard companies that were like DuPont, um, IBM, Kodak was in our sample before it died, like groups like that. How do you, in a large organization, you know, how do you find that future? Like the big radical innovations of the future that can help you change and survive for the future. And so we followed 12 companies and figured out how they do it. Okay, that's interesting. But can you then, the second research in the book was, can you set up a management and leadership system to do that? You know, it's, it's great to do it once, but can you set up a system that allows you to do that over and over again? This last book that came out, Stanford University Press, 2018, we realized through the research, and this is like, yeah, not a surprise, right? The issue is people. So beyond the champion refers to the fact that it's not one person. You have to get beyond just the champion who's trying to do it, and and the subtitle of the book is institutionalizing innovation through people. And so Hmm. what we really found there, and you talk about leadership, that you've got to have leadership and commitment around this. But we found that organizations and people still weren't doing it right because they would make carve off like little projects for people. So the the phrase I always use and I tell my co-authors is there are a lot of innovation jobs, but there are no innovation careers. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this book is Mm -hmm. really about that. It's about leadership saying we've got to put people in leadership in in leadership, innovation, entrepreneurship positions like not. I'm an engineer. And on the side, I do this. Like a lot of companies say that I give you 15% of your time, 20% of your time. That can work for these gigantic first-generation companies, ones that are still led by their CEOs, like the Googles, the mm-hmm. Amazons, all the rest. But for most of them, that this that doesn't work. I'm telling you, that, it doesn't work. And so much so that what I believe, and my co-author and I wrote in this is like, so if you think back, here's here's a story. I'll give you an anecdote now, Scott. All right. Okay. So here's a question. When was marketing, like when, who was the, when did marketing start? When was marketing like, and don't say Adam and Eve, like Eve with the Apple and that. didn't go back that far. But when did marketing start? And I think, think about like, what I mean by that is like, when's the first time, like we had sales and promotion, but when's the first time, like at what time period did we start seeing marketing as a profession, right? Like marketing, you would see a job and it wasn't a sales job, but it was a marketing job right? Yeah. 50s, uh, 60s. I know you were a madman fan, right? Yeah, so maybe yeah, right, right, 50s right. and 60s. So marketing as a profession is only like 50 years old. If I said to you today, I'm going to start a company, but I'm not going to have a marketing operation, you'd say I was insane. I mean, it wouldn't work, right?
1: Yep, right.
2: So my premise on this and in this book, part one of the themes is what we need are innovation departments. That's what companies need in the future. Not not now, Because not think about the ambiguity of the world, how things change rapidly. You've got to get somebody on the floor. And it can't be just a part-time job. Because if it's everyone's job, it becomes no one's job. No one's responsible for it. And that's the leadership part of it. <clears throat> so the right thing is like, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years, Gina and I, we feel like yeah, someone's going to go, remember that book those two people wrote back then that they, you know, we all kind of like, eh, well, I guess they were right. Because so I really think what you're going to see in the future is leaders taking that leadership role to say, we need people working full-time on innovation and entrepreneurship. Like there's a dedicated group to it um, in an organization. So you'll start, and we're starting to see some of it. People are trying to hire innovation professionals and innovation leaders and make, put them in an organization, recognizing that dealing with this ambiguity and the world turning upside down, you need people on this all the time. And that's it, off my soapbox.
1: No, actually I was gonna say, A couple of years ago, I won't, uh, we don't try not to name names on the the program, but uh, at a very large organization I was working with, a a nonprofit, um, I was a little bit taken aback of talking to their senior executive VP, um, and uh, he was uh, talking about how things that I normally don't hear when I'm in those places Um, taking it uh, you know, this year we, we gross this much, you know, we're going for 20% increase where uh, I'm going to be implementing blah, blah, blah. Um, We we need to be, I want partners, like uh, partners, vendors, like, you know, us that can help them get there and, it was all kind of, it sounded very corporate you know, world to me, uh, and you don't hear that, but then, and yeah. I was there most of the day.
2: But you need that to. Was,
1: that was my first meeting. Then I went to visit all the different directors that I work with, and the first one I sat down with, um, this, this was a medical group, and uh, uh, she kind of managed the uh, patient education Uh, Mm -hmm. side of things they produce tons of content but but we started talking we're having a coffee and stuff and uh, she starts crying (laughs) i said what's wrong and she said now she didn't know i'd met with him right and she said well they've our you know boss has told us that all these different groups including mine where we've always produced lots of great content but given it away now we're supposed to monetize it and be profitable. And yeah. she said, how, how, how do we, how am I supposed to do that? Yeah. And, and, and I think it goes right to your point. You can't, she's got a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Now you're telling her, all right, well, while you're at it, let's start making us money here. Yeah. I mean, well, it was, need- it, I felt sorry for her.
2: Yeah, you know, I would just kind of. Yeah, yeah I, I would, too, because you've seen I've seen that at different places. Now, it's not to say that the, the director, the leader was wrong, but getting people who have always done, you know, look, people don't like change. That's just fact. But, you know, someone who's yeah. been a content creator and develops great content and does that really well. Now coming to them all of a sudden saying you need to you used to be a cost center. now You have to be a profit center and you have to be, you know, at least revenue neutral, because I've seen this. I've seen this in some of the organizations I've worked in. All of a sudden and you need to be
1: an innovator, by the way.
2: Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I think the thing there is that the director's right. Maybe how he or she went about it and to affect that change maybe didn't work so right right away. But because, you know, you need different people with different skill sets, so you need to help coach them and bring them along, that person that you referred to. But at the larger level, the person running the nonprofit is right, like everything I'm speaking about, about leadership lessons or entrepreneurship lessons, and I tie them together. um, They're not just for for profits. I mean, these things should apply to government. They should apply to nonprofit. And we do we we teach and educate people in those spaces on that, because um, look, a nonprofit. um, There's there's little different about them in the way they're structured except for the, you know, in the way they have to operate, except for the fact that, you know, there's a different tax structure. They don't, they, yeah. they don't want to show profit at the end of the year. They are mission driven, usually primarily first, as opposed to something else. But the, so that's a given. But to operate, they still need cash. Someone still yep. needs to sell. Yep. So some of the things that people feel like that are the ugly, you know, parts of it, oh, you got to be selling and it's money and it's, ugh, and it's capitalist and well, look, Someone told me early working for a hospital, you know, when I was doing some consulting with a hospital, first thing said is like, no money, no mission. You know, Uh if you run a hospital or any nonprofit, someone's giving you money to run that. You have to sell. You have to you have to continue to provide value, either achieving your mission, making it right. You have to provide value and deliver that value still. It's just in a different way than a typical you know, commercial operation, but you still have to deliver value. If all of a sudden you're supposed to be saving some endangered species, but it's been years and the endangered species keep dying because you're not achieving what you're gonna do. At some point, people are gonna stop giving you money. They're gonna give it to some other cause they want because you're not getting it done. So all the same lessons apply. Um, it's obviously just a different focus. And in and, and the instance you gave, I think the director's right in what he or she was trying to do, but maybe misguided in how you do it. Because, I mean, if I ever show up to someone's office and someone's crying, I'm guessing the leadership didn't deliver the message (laughs) right, didn't provide the coaching, the help, the assistance. (laughs) And that goes, I'll just tell you, I I like rubrics. Scott, you know me. I'm a relatively simple guy, even though I've, you know, got all these other jobs or titles I do. My simple rubric, when I was teaching undergrads, I would tell them all the time, like, remember, here's the thing you got to Remember. As an employee, when you start, just for the most part, there are exceptions to this, but do your job well, make your boss look good. You Mm -hmm. do that, you're in good shape. And then when you become the boss, make sure your your functional, simple job, right? Employee, make the boss look good. Boss, give your employees all the resources they need to get their job done. Because there's nothing worse than asking people to achieve this. And not giving them the tools so your story is a perfect example of that right you know the (laughs) boss comes in and goes all right i know you've been doing this great job creating content for all these years well by next quarter i want you to monet you know monetize that and you know deliver you know fifty thousand dollars in revenue
1: yeah
2: yeah okay can you help (laughs) me with that a little bit yeah
1: so yeah that that was so um i guess i mean what kind of um this is a Big open question, but what sort of mistakes do you see that organizations—and I'm going to use that word instead of businesses—for, sure. for, but what sort of mistakes do you see them making in in terms of these days, yeah. in terms of innovation and uh, all this? Stuff? Oh, I,
2: I think generally anything, and trying to do Scott. I think um, they don't learn from their mistakes. That's the biggest thing, right? People talk all the time about they say things like fail fast, you know, learn this, but they don't, they don't take the time to reflect and really learn from the mistakes. I mean, if you, we're all gonna make mistakes. I mean, that's the, it's kind of the mantra we have at Babson and about teaching entrepreneurship. It's about action, right? If you wait until you have all the information, first of all, you'll never get all the information to make the right decision. But if you wait too long, the window's closed and it's gone. You gotta take action. So it's balancing of like, ah, I think I see something. I'll take a little action. And the point of the matter is you're going to fail, right? But it's not like you design a whole new part of the organization, right? And it fails. No, what you do is you, you, you go out into the market and you just try little things and learn. And you, you're testing your hypothesis. So this will go to the STM people out there. It's really about hypothesis testing, right? I have a, I have a hypothesis about how we need to start a new part of the organization in a new market. And you go out and just test, don't test the whole thing, don't drop a ton of money into it, a small amount of money, make an investment, try it. And then what you find out is like, oh, it'll actually work. So you build it or start to build it, or you find out uh, they want it, but not exactly like that. So I need to change some things. And then you just cycle through and change it, right? And so those are like, I call failures with a small F. And the problem is companies tend to try to bite off the whole thing and invest in a big thing. Or if they are doing it in a, in a more, you know, way where they're just taking small bites and learning as they go, um, they're not really reflecting and not really learning from that interaction with the customer or their market or their distributors or whoever they're working with to make it happen. So my thing is that it, the big part of it is, is that, like, we're all going to make mistakes and all organizations have missteps. There's no way around that. The question is, do you really learn from it? You know, are you really Mm -hmm. like attuned to the mistakes you made and can figure out not just how to make them again, but how does that inform you to make better decisions going forward? Um, That's what I see in a sort of general way.
1: Interesting. A couple other areas I'd like to get to. uh, But before we do that, can you um, tell our listeners uh, uh, a bit about Babson College? Yeah, Uh, sure. Not Uh, everybody's familiar with Babson. I mean, we, you know, I live in Boston, so.
2: No, not everyone's familiar. You and I are, you know, based in the Boston area for a long time. And of course, we would have heard of Boston because Bob, excuse me, Babson. Babson College is about 50 miles west of of Boston in the town of Wellesley, where Wellesley College is. You know, maybe a more famous and well-known women's college. Um, But Babson's been around. We just celebrated our centennial in, in 2019, so a little over 100 years. And it's interesting, people don't, you know, even Boston, New England area, but across the globe and pockets in the country, people know of us, but most people go, well, what's Babson? But what's interesting Mm -hmm. is we are and have been, it's the number one school in the world for entrepreneurship, right? And I don't say that immodestly, it's just kind of like U.S. News and World Report ranked number one undergraduate program 25 years in a row for entrepreneurship, right? um same thing for uh grad school ever since they've had these rankings we've been number 1 you know i always think about it and go look rankings rankings does that mean we're really the best i don't know but it means we're one of the best you know and and um you know well i'd say
1: 25 work. years in a row uh says a lot that's
2: for yeah, sure yeah yeah you know i'm part of it but part of it for us which is interesting so we are a school a small school just a bit it's a business school you know students the undergrads they take half of their courses a liberal arts course, the other half are um, business. We, but I think the reason why we're able to do that and do well in this is we're focused, right? We wouldn't be able to take on the Harvards and the Northwesterns of the world and the Princetons and the rest as a general business school. Like we're not gonna win in that battle, but if we focus mm. on something and, and, you know, Roger Babson, the guy who created the school over hundred years ago and, and ever since that time, he was an entrepreneur. We went into it to sort of that classic first mover advantage Everyone else was looking at big corporations and the company man Babson was always about startups. So, you know, you got in front of it, everybody's doing it now, but we were ahead of the game. And that's what really helped. And we're small, right? We're small. It's only about 2,500 undergraduate students, about the same number of grad students. So small focused on this. And it's just built a culture. If you're on the campus at Babson, everybody's trying to create something, start a business. Sure. But not just start a business. everyone's trying to create a create solutions to problems, create something new, whether it's an organization, a group, or starting a business. So there's this kind of culture and ethos around the place where everyone's always trying to create and find better ways. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a unique place and I'm, I'm happy. I've been there a little over a decade um, and I'm, I'm just happy to be you know, another cog in the wheel that helps the place go, but it's a really um, great place to work, great colleagues, really super smart, sharp people, and exceedingly smart, motivated, hardworking students. Um, you know, many of whom are setting the world on fire, doing some interesting things. I mean, history, yeah, people, I like Gerber, you know, baby foods, that's a Babson company, Home Depot, you know, Arthur Blank, that's a Babson company. Um, Jamie Siminoff, right? Ring, the doorbell ring thing that just got by, I don't know what, Amazon paid a hundred million for it a couple of years, whatever they did, a couple 40 million. I don't know what it was a couple of years ago, Babson company. Um, and those are some of the big ones, but the real thing that goes on there is everybody comes out of out of this place I think um, you know with an ability because I talked about before we really use the vehicle of a startup to teach the life skills that people will be successful um, regardless of what they do so they may not start a business but those skills about you know like I said before sort of a, a strong locus of control that I can help manage things do it right dealing with uncertainty and ambiguity not being afraid to try things and recognize that they, it may not go the way we wanted, right, that they may have some hiccups, like they come out of there practicing that and realize it's okay to fail, and, you know, um, and all that stuff. And so the students tend to be really successful. So it's just it's a fun place, great place to work. And so I appreciate the opportunity <laughs> to give a little commercial for my
1: employer well i but i assume that you would have people that want to go there that are extremely focused and they have big big ideas and things oh yeah it's probably not you know somebody like uh do i want to get into marketing or be an accountant you know i mean if they they know they want yeah. to go there and yeah well
2: yeah. So well we do i'm just
1: curious do you have a at the uh student union instead of uh instead of going into the little uh food court there uh, is it all
2: food trucks out not know campus? Um, No, no, that's an interesting, that's an interesting thing. But we do have once a year, we have food day on campus, because we do have a lot of food start related startups, you know, the people have started Mm -hmm. over the years. Um, So um, you do get that. Um, And so food day once a year is usually out on the campus where outside everywhere, it's foods, food trucks, all that all of our vendors who provide the food on campus that day they'll come and they try out all their new recipes and they give out food for free. And yeah, so there's there's a lot of that. I mean, you can't, you know, like there's someone knocking on my door all the time, students with a, an idea for a business and whatever. And I, I, I'm just glad I'm not the, um, the manager of the local Whole Foods that's two miles away because he or she gets hit by, you know, Babson students walking in there every day that they have the next greatest, latest, you know, food or whatever. So much so that they start a program for it. So now they have a formal program because not just for us, but other schools too. So yeah, it's, it's like that all the time and it's fun.
1: That reminds me, I used to, more log cabin stories. I used to attend the uh, you know, international food science meeting, whatever, and uh, they would always in the afternoon give away free ice cream, like sure. most conferences do, except at this place, you would see people uh, walk down the aisle with, uh, you know, uh, turquoise colored ice cream or, you know, some crazy colors and, uh, asked, I'd say, what is that blueberry? And he said, no, it's bacon and eggs, ice cream. You know, it's like it was, trying it all the, kinds of stuff.
2: That was the genesis of Tom Brady's avocado ice cream, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and finally here, um, so can you just tell us quickly what you're doing in, uh, in, in Chile and Norway?
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, in Chile for a, a little over a So just as I was getting to Babson um, we had a you know Babson has a strong South American footprint so we have a lot of students from actually from Miami and Florida area and then South America um, and so in Chile we have a wonderful benefactor down there who he and then his children his children's children have all gone to Babson and we with 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 him, we've developed a program down there. He wanted to help Chile become more entrepreneurial and create more entrepreneurs. So the intent initially was for us to go down there and do that. Then they realized the better way would be to train their professors and their people down there to build incubators, accelerators, and and teach entrepreneurship better. So that's what I've been doing. I go down there a few times a year for a couple of weeks at a time, and we train um, professors and other folks on how to build entrepreneurship programs, courses, but also incubators, accelerators to actually start businesses. So that's super fun. And Norway, Norway's fun because I'm up at a school, Nord University, up on the Arctic Circle, right at the top, right? So like this time of year, where are we're September. Well, it's starting to get darker and stuff, but I'll go there where it's sun all the time, you know, in June and other times where it's dark all the time. Um, But over there, I'm just, you know, doing some of the same thing, helping them with the students with incubators, accelerators, starting businesses in that region, cause it's a remote area that's mostly around tourism. So we do that. And I work with their doctoral students on the egghead, other stuff too. So yeah, those are both really um, fun, fun opportunities and places for me to help other folks and kind of see the world and, you know, do some things like that. So I so, suppose I mean, that But entrepreneurship should... is big everywhere, Scott. I'm going to, there's a great school about halfway in between where you and I are now called Landmark College. On the Vermont uh, New Hampshire line. And they're a school for students with um, ADHD, some form of executive function problem, learning disabilities, all of that. Um, And I'm going up there in a couple of weeks just to do a whole session. They have uh, some folks there trying to do entrepreneurship and help those folks start businesses. So, you know, everywhere I go, I mean, I've just become a convert and a believer that that sort of uh, skill set of being an entrepreneur is like what we all need going forward in the future. You don't have to be an entrepreneur and start a business, but you need those skill sets. I mean, Scott, geez, you have it. I mean, that's how you've built your career, right? I mean, you know, you work for different people, fe- like you're the company of you kind of stuff. I mean, uh, and I just think that's so critical as the world evolves. Um, we we as individuals have to take um, responsibility for our own careers in ways. So if we go into an association and we're going to run, you know, be a part of that, or we're running one of these association groups that you, you deal with. Well, okay, that's great, but how's the association working today? How can we make it better? What do we need to function? We can't keep doing things the same old way. Like that high skill set and mindset and an ability to try and change things over time is hugely important.
1: You know, I have, uh, I, uh, uh that, the uh, executive I was talking about, he kind of got on his, uh, his stump that day with me and I was an audience of one, but, uh, He kind of stopped mid-sentence, and he sort of yelled in a good way. He said, said, adoption, reach, and revenue, the goal of every association. And I'm going to add to that after our talk today. No money, no mission. Yes, there you go. Any association uh, people we've had on our podcast, that's mission, mission, mission. So uh, that's a good one. I'm going to use that.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a, it well, doesn't mean it, it didn't mean to be crass, but it's true, right? If you, it's really about the value, right? If you don't deliver that value, it's not going to happen. The money's not going to come. Well, and it is.
1: Um, we didn't talk today, uh, was really, but uh, I've been asking everybody, you know, obviously, at their organization, how has COVID affected it? Working from home. Most of these people have never worked at home a day in their life. I mean, it was a big period of adjustment, but. Um, and, uh, as I've shared with our listeners when a year ago, whatever, I was a little nervous, how, how is it going to affect them? And, um, luckily there, and we won't name names, but there was one huge organization that has practically disappeared because they, um, you know, all the conferences and events were gone, but they're gone for everybody. Right. Um, but all of the stuff affected them, I suppose, in a way. And when that happened, I got very nervous because, wow, if you know, they they, they basically went from 1,200 people to less than 200 now. Hmm. Um, and but so, so you know, that'll be an interesting case study
2: because everybody
1: had to go through the same thing. But yeah, everybody some, did. I, I, I think the reason. First few,
2: yeah, first few weeks yeah. or few months, everyone was like, "Okay, we're gonna get over this." And so we'll lose revenue for a quarter or so, and then we'll get back to business. And when people realize it wasn't, it was like, all right, we got to start making these conferences and interactions and delivering the value of the association that we we're delivering. We just got to find a different way to deliver it. Like your people, you know, your association members still need it. So how are we going to deliver, you know, whether it's continuing education, a meeting, you know, sort of like we've got to find a different way. And same thing happened for me, right? The conferences I would go to, they, went virtual and it's not as simple as just switching over to it, but we all, everybody had to find a way. And uh, so that, so to me, that's why this, these skill sets and leadership skills of being an entrepreneurial leader are so important because this is the first worldwide pandemic. Most of uh, any of us had to deal with. Um, Hopefully it's the last, but you know, we're going to have issues like this over time, whether it's just within an industry or a pocket or, you know, a whole market or whatever. So you gotta, you gotta be nimble and agile and ready to do it.
1: Yeah. Well, and speaking of that, I'm going to need to pivot right now to use a a fun word and kind of bring this to a close. But uh, I want to thank you again, Andrew, uh, for coming on today with uh, with us uh, and being on the part of the H Society podcast. I really appreciate it. Um, Can you please tell our listeners how, if they'd like to get in touch with you?
2: Yeah, sure. Happy to. So Um, first, it was a pleasure to be with you, Scott. It's always great to talk to you and it's great to talk to you in this venue as well. Um, And sure, if anybody, you know, anything I said today sparked an interest and people want to reach out the best way is, you know, just connect with me via email and that's Corbett at babson.edu. So that is A-C-O-R-B-E-T-T at babson.edu and babson is B-A-B- S O N. I guess the easiest way you can just go to the Babson website. You can find me there. Find me and all the other uh, find me and all all the other other great folks that are there. I shouldn't say all the other makes me sound great. You you know. Well,
1: yeah, yeah, but you never know. Maybe uh, I hope we struck a chord with even one person. They might want to talk to you. Uh, I think that would be great. Yeah. We hope this has helped our listeners gain some clarity on entrepreneurship today. Uh, I hope you found it as interesting as I did. Um, And now for our Hello Housekeeping, should you have any questions about digital content, platforms, online learning for your society or association, please check out our award-winning urix.com, that's h-u-r-i-x.com, to learn more about how we help to manage it all securely. Don't forget to subscribe to the archive of the H Society's weekly podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening from. Visit herix.com for more information on our season one guests and future episodes. As I will be remiss if I didn't thank uh, my wonderful executive producer, the great and amazing Bala. So uh, everyone, please stay safe, healthy. And thanks again, Andrew. And to all our listeners, we'll be back again next week with another podcast. This is Scott Hansen saying goodbye and take care.
0: You've been listening to the Age Society Podcast, presented by Hurix Digital. Hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to make sure you never miss an episode to learn more about the ways people are making their organizations valuable for their members through digital technology, publishing, and continuous education. Visit Hurix.com to learn more about future-ready digital solutions for publishers, enterprises, non-profits and educational institutions.